Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can always reach out to the podcast to recommend future guests or to be connected to a previous guest by emailing us at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and check out our website, www.projectmedtech.com. My guest today is Craig Berkey. Craig is the Chief Operating Officer at Nagelreiter and the Head of Project Lifecycle Management. Craig has a rich history in the medical device field, including working with Johnson & Johnson, IDX Medical, and Interplex. In this episode of the podcast, Craig and I discussed problems with contract manufacturing, the importance of choosing the correct contract manufacturer, designing a product that can be manufactured from the get-go, and much more. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Craig Berkey. All right, Craig, thanks for joining me on the podcast this morning. Hey, thank you. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, so, so yeah, if you can give a, a, a brief introduction to your history in the medical device space, um, and then uh, let's dive into our conversation. Sure, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, my name's Craig Berkey. I, I've been, uh, been in the med device area. It's a little over 30 years now. I started my career in in 91 at uh, Johnson & Johnson's Ethicon Endosurgery and spent about seven years there, kind of upfront. It was at the, uh, it was a great time. It was at the, at the, at the start of laparoscopy. So J&J was getting into that space. They were competing with US Surgical and it was, it was kind of the wild west of, of laparoscopy. We were developing access devices, troll cars, clip appliers, uh, all type of laparoscopic device, hernia staplers. and. So I worked in R&D up front probably for about five years and transitioned into supply chain. And, and, uh, and so, you know, it was, you know, we, at that time, we kind of caught up the U.S. surgical and, and everything started to come to a kind of a, a stop. And, and so I thought it was a great opportunity to get into, into the operation side and we were doing cost reduction. So it was fun. It was all the devices that we designed and developed and, you know, you went to the market fast and now it was time that you could reduce costs and you knew exactly where all the costs were. So you knew where the skeletons were and it was easy to do. And, and at that time, a colleague of mine uh, approached me about spinning out a kind of an incubator company. And so we, we started a company, IDX Medical, and uh, worked out of the basement for about another seven years. So we licensed technology and we were equity based. Uh, so we had a, a small machine shop, and uh, we would develop prototypes and license the technology. One of our, the, well, probably our most prominent was we licensed technology to the Cleveland Clinic, co-licensed it, which was the first time that the Cleveland Clinic accepted somebody else's equity position into it. So did a lot of work with uh, Toby Cosgrove up there and Mark yeah. Gillenoff and the team up at the Cleveland Clinic. And, uh, and then we spun off four companies. And it was interesting. At that time, it was you know, it was like the early late nineties. And, and so you were able to license technology and in with some royalty stream and, you know, you were doing it for a couple million and, you know, people were buying the prototype, they were buying IP and we really were strong in, in developing IP portfolios. 
and you could start to see the market change. You know, the market shift became companies weren't interested. They didn't care about a four or five million dollar, uh, you know, acquisition or, or buying the technology. What they wanted was post revenue. They wanted something that was already in the market, something that there was a sales force around, and they would much rather pay forty million than four million and de-risk the regulatory intellectual property. So, starting to see that shift occur and. And at that time, we were we were working with two contract manufacturers, and, and we were just, frankly, we were disappointed. It was difficult. You know, it was hard to find, you know, contract manufacturers, contract engineering firms that really understood 1345, who, you know, a lot of them, you know, looked at, you know, a lot of the ISO standards as, you know, really necessary evils and really never embraced it. You know, fortunately, you know, I, you know, right place, right time. I came up through Ethicon, and, and, and it was just a great place to learn and, and to be in into the ORs and, and, and to start your career. So it was just disappointing not being able to find strong contract manufacturers. So it was at that time it was a need. So I spun off of IDX and started Interplex Medical with another partner, and uh, and it was a, you know the need was to contract manufacturing. So what we did, I think, was kind of unique is that when we started Interplex Medical, it was just not a design house. It was design and manufacturing. So we started with the clean room engineers. And, and, and with the, you know, I was very, you know, very convinced that you can't really be a strong engineering firm if you don't know how to manufacture. And you can't be a manufacturing firm if you really don't know, and you know, design up front. So, so, you know, we were, you know, I was working with contract manufacturers in the past that, they were, you know, more, I'd say, uh, you know, not as strong in the design side of it. So this was an opportunity to marry the two together. So, so we ran that for 15, I ran that for 15 years and, uh, we were acquired by private equity, Singaporean private equity. And I probably spent my last four years, uh, uh doing acquisitions, uh, looking at different ways to, to grow the, uh, the business of Interplex, the medical business of Interplex. And, uh, yeah, it was fun. It was a great time. And, and then I had an opportunity to come to Florida. A, a colleague of mine was starting a neurovascular company down here and, and was looking for some help. And uh, so I moved down here and uh, started, I, I ran that for about a year and then got them up on their feet and kind of transitioned to this current role at uh, Nagel Writer and MDDO. And pretty much similar, you know, contract engineering, manufacturing. I think what's unique about this company is, is that we do a lot of investment into technologies where most contract manufacturers are gun for hire. Here, we'll look at incubating a technology and providing the full suite, a C-suite up front, uh, fundraising, all the regulatory, completely, truly soup the nuts in the back end of manufacturing. So in a nutshell, yeah. that, that's been my career. Yeah, so that's it's super interesting. I want to dive into some of the things you touched on Um during your background, you know, specifically in regards to, um, you know, companies were being, it's not just interested in a four to $5 million acquisition, but rather a 40 to $50 million. Um, before we get to that, um, the, the Nagel writer piece of it, right? So it, it is, it is fascinating what you guys do, um, because you, you, you don't just, supply you're just not you're gonna say oh yeah we'll take this product and 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 make it for you right it really is a i think um tim used to call it a elevator right 
or or, or something along these lines. And, and yeah, that's I, correct. yeah I, I think if I was an investor and and I was talking to a startup company and they said, hey, I'm at I'm at Nagel Writer, and and you're able to sit there and say, oh, I have a VP of engineering, I have you know a VP of finance, I have some regulatory support, I have people who have built a product before and manufactured right. it. It makes it a lot easier for me to say, yeah, I, I can invest my money here. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a big sell. I mean, you, you're right. And so th- th- this is the challenge. The challenge is that people don't realize it until they do something in- until they make a mistake. They don't realize the value proposition. So the value proposition is exactly that. Most most entrepreneurs, people with startup companies have the idea. They, they talk to somebody. They may get some friends and family seed money. They have somebody who can do some CAD work. They do some drawings. They find an IP attorney. So they're kind of piecemealing everything. And and then they go to a design house. They have something, and it doesn't work. And so then they start asking around. They find out they spent 50, 70 grand. And then they find out, you know, of a company like us that integrates everything. It has it all here. And that's when they really appreciate it. Then they start to appreciate that, they're not going to have to do the fundraising. The regulatory and the engineering, we're all integrated. So you don't have one entity. You don't have your CAD guy, a friend who does things at night, and he's not talking to the regulatory person. They both don't understand the ISOs, regula- the regulations. They don't understand design history files. So they're going about it very clumsy how they go about it. And, and when things go awry and they're looking for a, another company, they see this, they're like, oh, my God, I wish I would have known about you guys a long time ago. And at that time, a lot of times it's too, you know, it's never too late, but they've spent a lot of money. But so trying to, trying to, you know, it's a, it's, it's a challenge to sell that to a company saying, here's everything that you need. Uh, and a lot of times they look at the, the you know, the, the, the price tag and say, holy crap, that's a lot, but they don't realize the value. And so, you know, they would, they would rather be their own general contractor and say, you know, I can go get my plumber, I can get my electrician. But when they find out that, you know, the, you know, the, the electrician just came after the drywall that came and they've already drywalled up the dry walls and they can't put the, the wiring in, it's too late. And so they're ripping out walls and it's the same thing here. If, if you've never done it, it's daunting, but if you've done it, like the, the amount of times we have, there, there's a what we call a recipe, and, and we follow the recipe fairly uh, strictly, and, and, it, and it, it, it really guarantees good results. Yeah, Craig, so that's an interesting point. Um, I do want to bring up another point. So you're talking about the integration, right? And you, and you use the house example, and that's something I use a lot when I talk to clients about um, thinking about reimbursement, regulatory, clinical, all at an early phase, right? And and instead of being your own general contractor, you know, let someone else do that for you and bring in that network. Um, the other thing is, the other analogy I like to use, and I think this is something that Nagel Raider has unique value proposition in, is your leadership team is very experienced, right? Um, and, and, and I know you, Brett, and Tim, for the most part, and I'm sure there's others, but I, I, I know that you guys have a lot of experience in the medical device space. You've worked for startups. You've had startups. Um, that's another thing that I, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs underestimate is when you are bringing a product to market, you have a general idea of, 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 of what you need based on your research. But what the actual, in actuality, what it is, is you're in a dark room someone shuts the lights off 
and you have a bunch of obstacles in the way. And when people have done that, it's like they're giving you, they're, they're helping guide you and they have a flashlight. And I think that's another really valuable um, uh, resource that you guys can offer is because you have people who have done it before, um, it, it, it helps people understand that, you know, yeah, they know they need this, they know they need that, but where are those pitfalls that you guys have maybe learned the hard way or have seen that can help them prevent that? So I think that's another, a, a big value proposition that the, the Nagel Raider team has. Yeah, no, that, that you're spot on. That's a great point. You know, it's, you know, we teach, you know, you, you know, it's a great analogy, the flashlight in the dark room, but we teach, we're teaching our, we're teaching, you know, our customers, the process, you know, and, and what that does is it eliminates, we've made the mistakes in our past, you know, all of us collectively have made mistakes and what you're getting with the experience is, is, is not making those mistakes. It's, it's being, it's the chess game. It's being able to see six, seven moves ahead versus just that one on in, in front of you. And in understanding the implications that you make right now, what implication it's going to have from the regulatory, you know, the predicate device that you're identifying now, what the implication is going to be down the road, the reimbursement codes, it's fundability. I mean, we talk a lot about some of our early startups about great idea. You can get five docs interested, but can you really raise 20 million around that one product? And, and how do you do that? So yeah, you're, you're spot on. It's, there's just so many that, you know, you look at the FDA guidelines and they're very broad and very vague. And, and, and for some people who are very specific, it's frustrating, but, you know, it's done very wisely to give people a lot of latitude. And, and when you know how much latitude you have and you can use it all, it, it, it's very helpful. And, and we know that, and we have strong partnerships. Part of the uh, Nagawriter model is, is the fractional staff. So we're, we have, we have a tremendous network and, you know, it's what I like to call connecting the dots. Mm -hmm. uh, we do that extremely well. So you're paying for our expertise. You're paying for our network. You're paying for us to not make those mistakes, our efficiencies in getting products to market. Whereas other companies, you're just not getting that, you know, you're getting early stage people that don't, you know, you know <laughs> that don't have the battle scars. Nice. And, uh, you know, going through that, it was, they weren't, they weren't fun. You know, failure is never fun, but failure always builds, you know, character and strength and knowledge. And, you know, I think between, you know, Tim, Brett and I, we, we've, we've had our share in the past and it's been a long time ago and we keep improving over time with mm -hmm. customers. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, yeah, so I want to go back to a few things that you mentioned in your in your bio. Um, you talked about the acquisitions from, you know, the four to five million dollar range. All of a sudden now companies are wanting to de-risk that and go to 40 or 50. What was the time frame for that? Because, um, you know, I wasn't around uh, back then or in the medical device industry. Um, but, you know, through my my reading and, and learning and talking to people, you know, I, I heard about this shift and you see it continue to kind of get pushed further and further out and startup companies are asked to do more and more and more. So, you know, as a startup company, how do you prepare for that? Knowing that your exit isn't, it, unless you're a PMA device, it could be pre 
uh, regulatory approval or, or, or somewhere in, or, or before there, you know, but if you're a 510k, I mean, your, your exit is not regulatory. It's not even <laughs> maybe the selling on a regional market. It might even be that next right. step. So how do you prepare for that? You know, it, it, you know, really interesting. It, it's, you don't, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, what, what the advice I always give people is be prepared to run it, be prepared to run it in perpetuity. You know, so many customers have come and in, in are pretty nonchalant about their exit. And, you know, it's funny. It's, it's always the physician, you know, who have these relationships, you know, with the reps and, and what they don't realize is everybody is going to, say they're interested. Everybody wants a front row seat. Everybody wants to see what's going on. But again, you, when you're having that exit, when you're having a, a strategic acquire you, you've got to look at it from their perspective. It's what does it do synergistically with their, their, their portfolio now and how do they increase sales? Nobody wants to buy a $50 million company or pay 50 million and just get 50 million in revenue. What they want to do is, that 50 million with their current platform is now going to be 125 million, but the synergy with the pull through. So it's really that targeting. So it's not that easy. I mean, you know, it's finding the space. It's finding space that you truly need. There's a need, there's a need with reimbursement. There's, you know, a runway with reimbursement. There's a, a need for enabling technology years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, the bright, shiny penny, people would, you know, put it to market. But nowadays, the bar is so much higher, you know, from from a fundability, you know, devices aren't being funded, they weren't being funded, you know, 30 years ago, in laparoscopy, the mechanicals were taking off. Now that's been supplanted by energy. Uh, so people don't, I mean, devices are tough to fund anymore. So what we really look for here is platform technologies, technologies that you have different products, coming off of the same technology. So now you have a family of products and intrinsically that has more value than that one device. That one device that you squeeze the trigger, it does this. Can you really raise 2 million around that? Do you really think there's gonna be an exit? Do you really think a, a Boston, a Medtronic's gonna come in and pay 15 million for it? Probably not. Mm-hmm. You know, unless it's truly enabling it, unless it really improves the lives of, of patients and there's a, a, a significant uh, shift in the market, people aren't going to acquire it. So you're just going to run it. So that really becomes, it really becomes a lifestyle business, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you watch Shark Tank and there's plenty of times in Shark Tank, they're like, hey, it's not investable, but hey, that's great. You know, you're doing, you know, you're doing $3 million a year. These are lifestyle businesses. And a lot of these co- companies are lifestyle businesses. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, that's what they are. Yeah. But the exits, there's something very strategic about an exit. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the lifestyle businesses, you know, and they kind of say that on Shark Tank. I mean, if that's, if that's what you want to do, that's, that's certainly yeah. fine. But if you're going to go raise money um, to, you know, exit or to to right. really grow it yeah you're, you're you're right you have to have that platform technology most likely um yeah it, it's it's having the legs it's having the legs to say i'm gonna run this damn thing as much right. as you don't want to you know if, if somebody's not acquiring it you're gonna be burning cash and you just gotta run it that's what you right. gotta do yep so so i want to dive into the um cmo 
you know, projects with contract, sorry, contract manufacturing organizations, I should, I should clarify. Um, but I want to dive into the importance of it, you know, some of the issues you see, because it, it, it it's the same thing, like in, in my world, with a quality management system. I feel like sometimes I have conversations with clients and I tell them you have to have a strong QMS and they go, yeah, I get that, but I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get to the next step and, and do this. And, 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 you know, I, I don't know, hopefully I can sell by then, right. By the time I need to really worry about that. And while I understand that, you know, strategics are really picking apart QMSs now because they've been burned. Um, so I, I have a feeling contract manufacturing might be like that where, where people, you know, the importance of, I, there's two questions here um, and you could tackle them however you want or interweave them, but problems, importance of contract manufacturing and the importance of designing a product that you can actually manufacture from the get-go. I think those are the two biggest things I'd love to hear your opinions on. Yeah, no, I'll start with the latter. Uh, that, that, that's a huge thing, you know, and it goes back to my earlier comments about design houses, you know, making product. Your point about a QMS, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, I, you know, in my last company, I, you know, I, I put so much emphasis in the QMS, uh, you know, having a very compliant but flexible QMS. Here at Nagelreiter, we do the same. Or we have a very, very strong QMS. And what, what it does is it de-risks by nature, you know, and, and it's just a mentality. It's a mentality and it starts from the top from senior management. If senior management embraces it, then the rest of the team is, and the rest of the team is going to know how important it is. And when you start looking at those acquisitions down the road and people coming in auditing, they're going to start looking at that, you know, with a careful eye. And I'll give you an example. When I was doing acquisitions for a few years, you know, where I was very successful at doing it was, you know, I was multi-tool. You know, by starting and running a company, starting a quality system, I understood the importance. So there was things that I would do. I would go into a company. I would first thing I would do is look at, you know, other than the PL, I would study their PL before I went out, but I would look at their catalog. And I would just look at it. And if their catalog didn't have any actions, it told me it wasn't an active catalog. And it told me that they weren't really, they didn't really understand or take it serious. And then I'd also look at, you know, we know cap is corrective, corrective action, preventative action. So for me, it was always interesting to see how many PAs did you, how many preventative action capas did you have? So that would give me indicators. Did they really look that it is a punitive side to corrective action, or were they really using the tool to prevent things from happening? Uh, the other things I would look at with QMS is I would just look at the revisions on your QMS. And, I, and if I looked at it and they didn't have anything revised for five years, that was a dead system. They weren't using it. It was a check mark. They were just putting it off to the side and nobody, and before I even talk to anybody, I would start looking at all those. And then I knew the questions I could start asking about it. So, you know, that all goes hand in glove. If you're not following, if you don't understand quality, especially in this industry, uh, you're going to fail. You know, Brett and I were talking yesterday and we were, you know, our, our conversation, we were talking about, we were talking about a, a, a colleague and they were, they were really talking about their quality system. And, and I always look at the quality system as a given, a strong quality system to be in this game, to be taken seriously. You just have to have a good quality system. You have to invest. And, uh, and you know, you're, it's not upfront. You're not, it's not revenue generating. 
but it is something that down the road, you're going to reduce your cycle times, you're going to improve the quality of your products. And from an exit, you're going to de-risk. That's what you're really looking for from a startup. You know, like we talked earlier, you're looking for that exit. So when a company or when a strategic comes in, they're going to start looking at it. And if they start peeling back the onion and they start seeing these rotten layers that you haven't done proper DV testing, well, guess what? Look at all the consent decrees we've been seeing with the FDA, with all these big tier one companies. It's just, it's an alarm bell after alarm bell, and that's going to go back. It's going to devalue your company, or you're just not going to be part of the conversation. So it's extremely important yeah. to, to, to embrace that and to embrace the, uh, the importance of it and just not just do it because it's compliant. Right. And, and to even go one step further, even if you're not going to exit your company and you're going to manufacture your product, then it's even more important. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's important no matter what. Um, okay. What about um, manufacturing a product that, or, or sorry, designing a product that you can actually manufacture? Because I've seen companies <laughs> fail here as well. Uh, and, and I'm not an expert in, in design or, or contract manufacturing, but I do know that um, I've seen companies design something really slick, have me work on biocompatibility, um, regulatory reimbursement, work on their claims, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden they go to talk to a contract manufacturer and, the, and, 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 and those people go, we can't make this. Uh, you got to make this adjustment. And then all of a sudden they're repeating biocomp and all these things. So, you, got it. you know, how yeah. do you, how do you, do you, how do you, how do you, is it, is it working with someone who understands that? Um, you know, how well, do you combat that? We've got to educate them. Yeah. I mean, we've got to educate them. I mean, that, that, that's really it. Uh, you know, the smart customers are the ones we look for, you know, uh, you know, fortunately in this point of, you know, the Nagarider business is that we can be a little selective about our customers. You know, Tim and I work closely together and, you know, upfront when we look at opportunities and, you know, when we're talking, you know, the, you know, asking very direct questions on, hey, give me an idea of, what do you think that your ASP, what's this device going to go for in the market? And they'll give you an idea. And I'm like, okay, you think it's going to be $200. How much do you think you're going to need to buy that from us? And they're going to, you know, $20. And you're looking at it. I've got three circuit boards. I've got, you know, 14 components. You've got plastic housings and, you know, it's low volume. Packaging is going to be, you know, it's going to, you know, because it's a heavy device and has a battery you're looking at, there's no way you're going to, it's going to cost you 150 to make it in those volumes. So it's, it's walking people through that. The first thing you've got to look at, and that, and, and that's what we do at Network, or that's a, the value proposition is we're going to ask all those questions up front before we start to put pen to paper, before we start designing that we're going to start to understand what's your regulatory strategy, what's your cost of goods target going to be, what's your, 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 the market available, you know, your market's going to be. And then you can start going back and saying, okay, you're going to need a target cost, a cost of goods of $20. And we're going to start designing from there. It's got, we've got to design something that we can make for 20 bucks, not the other way around. And that's the problem is when we get inventors that come in, they already have a design. They've already worked with their neighbor's uncle in the basement who has CAD and they've already designed it up and they're coming saying, this is what I want you to make. It's like, okay, we can make it for you. So that's part of what we provide, but we're not going to have any ownership. You're really not going to get any of our, 
you know, the expertise, you're not going to get the value proposition if you do it, but we'll do it. We'll, we'll give you the caveats why it's not a good idea. Or you can let us go back to what we call our phase A and go through all of those activities. So then we can ensure before we go downstream that we're designing the right product for the right price, for the right market, for the right needs. Yeah, I love that approach. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that that is... Um... I mean, th- that, that's for one why I enjoy, you know, talking to you guys and working with Nagel Writer and, and, and learning these types of, of uh, things, because I think that approach, that holistic approach is so important. Um, and the fact that you're taking it even one step further before you're even thinking about that prototype um, is, is important. Um, and, that's it. And, yeah. and it's the whole thing, Dwayne, it is, it's, it's running the race without you know when the gun goes off we're look we've already studied the map we know where we're running where a lot of our competition the first thing they want to do is start designing the very first thing they want to do and you don't know what you're designing to you don't know the market the specifications the regulatory class one class two materials predicate device if i know what my predicate is up front i know my materials i know that i can design it for a 510k i know what i can identify and then i'm not going into a de novo or something wacky if i don't have to i know up front if i'm going to have to do a 510k with clinicals that way my customer now knows i've got to do some fundraising because i'm going to have to do a Maybe it's a small clinical, 10 patient, but they know that up front. And it's not, it's not at the end of it when they're going back saying, holy crap, that's, that, that's another $100,000. I didn't have that budgeted or anything. We're trying to give them that information up front. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it makes sense that your, you know, uh, that your competition wants to design first, right? Because this is something I always tell startups is, you know, understand when you talk to consultants, whatever they are an expert in, that's how they see the, the 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 steps of bringing a product to market, right? And what you really want to find is people who have this lens, where like like you guys, if you really wanted to, you could just design and contract manufacture, and that's all you would have to do, right? But right. but instead, you're taking a step back and and understanding there's more to product development than just what I love to do, and and being able to do that and then provide that advice is really, really important. So um, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I always caution startups, just be wary when you're, when you're speaking to experts that regulatory experts see the world of getting a product to market in, in only regulatory right. and reimbursement the same right. way and clinical the same way. So you need to take everything they say with a grain of salt. And that's why you're the CEO of the company, right? That's why, right. that's why you're the CEO of the startup. You need to make sure you take all of that and weigh it. Right. Um, but, but it's also easier yeah. when your consultants feel the same way as you. Yeah. And, and, and it's a great, it's a great point and a great advice to, to new CEOs is listen, listen to the guys that, have done that, the, you know, the, the men and women who have done this before, you know, and, and, and you know, you know, off topic a little bit, you know, the, the most difficult people to convince are physicians and physicians, because, you know, when you look at, you know, a, a surgeon, I mean, it, it, it's the captain of the OR. I mean, s- surgeons are responsible for life and death decisions daily. And so when they want to make a medical device and they have a couple colleagues that have done it, it's easy. And because I look what I do every day, I, I save lives. I, you know, I, I reconstruct, 
you know, parts of the anatomy. So this is easy. And once they're halfway through, they're going, oh, my God, this is insane. I didn't know that that had an effect of that and that these linkages were there. And and so it's really listening. You know, it's giving us the opportunity to provide the value proposition, you know, what the pathway is going to be, where the risk. We have risk indicators. We, It's very unique. That it, what we provide is a risk register that we can now show our customer where do we have potential risk going down and then what steps are we going to have may have to take to mitigate those down the road. No other contract manufacturers does that. They go down. It's like, Oh my God, we ran into it. Here's what's going on. It's going to be another 20 grand. It's going to be another eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So we try to provide as much information up front. Yeah. Okay, great. So can you tell me a little bit about, um, we've, we've kind of covered the actually making something that's can be manufactured, but, but talk about choosing a contract manufacturer, um, things, you, you know, you need to make sure if, if, if you're a startup company, you know, what do I need to look for? What are common pitfalls and talk about the importance of really vetting that? Because I, I, I know of a few people, um, who have added over a year and a half to their timeline because they chose the wrong CMO to start. No, I agree. Yeah. It's you know, the first thing I, I would do is process, you know, I do as much research as I could to understand what the process of the FDA, what the regs are. And, uh, and then I, you know, I'd go interview my contract manufacturers. I'd start understanding what's their process. What's the first thing they're going to do? Uh, do they have a, you know, everybody has the FDA process, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, transfer, but really understanding, you know, getting examples of it, looking at some of their design inputs and design history files. And a lot of contract manufacturers aren't going to share that because they're, you know, the, the, the confidential information, but walking through it, seeing how well they can speak to it, you know, talking about pitfalls, you know, you know, Dwayne, I, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I, I would love to tell you that I, you know, run projects that have been perfect going through, but they're, they haven't happened. There's always Murphy, something that pops in there, but it's your ability to identify early and mitigate it. It doesn't mean that it, it, the effect was an additional cost or an additional schedule creep. It just meant something didn't go to plan. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, I like to say an old saying, it says, you know, man plans and God laughs. It's so, you know, your plans are as good as, you know, what you put together, but it's really, it's, you know, how do you react when something goes off? But it, it, it's, it's having discipline. So, you know, I would, I would, you know, uh, suggest that, even in today's day of COVID, go visit, go visit, go walk in, talk to the staff, talk to the engineers that you're going, you know, make it, you know, take a look at your organizational chart of your CMO. Look at the depth. I mean, if you have, if your quality side of it, if it's a fairly good sized business and they have one quality director and one quality engineer, and then they have three projects going, that may be a red flag for you thinking, you know, who's going to be doing the quality side of the business. So I think an org chart is important. It's important to walk the floor. It's important. You know, I'm seeing a lot of contract manufacturers that they're, they're kind of an offshoot of a, of an industry. For example, a molder, you know, people would come to a molder and then over the years they would give design for moldability advice. And so then somebody asked them, well, could you design this? Well, they're designing it with their plastic hat on. And so they're not really 
they're really not product developers, product designers, but they're they're designing plastic parts, and all of a sudden they've got four parts in their contract engineering, contract manufacturing. So I'd really try to see what was the origin, where, how did your business start, and if that's the case, have you brought in people, have you trained people? I mean, product developers, designers are completely different than design for manufacturer. You know, people who. You know, stampers who are designing for stamping, you know, molders, mems, people like that, completely different set of skills. So I would really, you know, take a look at people's CVs and see how do they match where those engineers, where have they been at that contract manufacturer? What kind of products have they developed internally? You know, you may, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, design houses manufacturing do a lot. They're going to do work for Procter and Gamble, they may be doing bottles for them. So, you know, they may have one section that's medical and they may have commercial, they may be making Mr. Coffee coffee makers. So, you know, you know, respectfully, I, I tend to stay away from them. You know, in medical is, is, is very uh, challenging. And I, you know, my advice would be focus on somebody who's their focus is, is medical devices and, and not other, uh, non-regulated industries. Sure. And, and, and to, to, just to be clear, Nagel writer only focuses on medical devices. Correct. correct? Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, no, I appreciate this. This is super helpful. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, every time I have someone on it, it's very much interview style. It's very conversational. There's always some underlying topic with you. It was obviously contract manufacturing design, um, but I always ask because, uh, people who have been in the industry a long time, they give really good advice in, in other spaces as well, right? Because they've been around, they've picked up a few things. So, so do you have some advice for startup companies in the med tech space in general? It doesn't have to be related to, to just engineering or contract yeah, manufacturing yeah. could be other things as well. Yeah. Find people, uh, find critics, find critics early. Don't surround yourself with people who think like you. Find the person that you trust that's going to give you advice. Controvert, you know, it's find somebody that, that that's going to look at it with a critical eye. Go outside of your network. You know, if you have, if you're partnering, if you have an idea and you're partnering with a physician, don't talk to their friends. Find somebody else. Find the the earlier you can shoot holes in it and find out what's not right about it. Or you might find people who validate it that just make you want to run even faster. So it's not always negative. It's it, it can be very positive, beneficial too. And the other thing is, you know, the importance. Probably the most important thing with startups that I see. And Brett and I were talking about this yesterday. Was it's knowing when to spend money. I mean, knowing when to slow it down, when to speed it up. At what phases do you really need to speed it up? And at the end of the day. I find more products, more technologies that don't make it to the market isn't because of funding. It's because they miss their market window. There becomes, when you start looking at a technology and idea early on, you, you identify, you look at the market and you're saying the market doesn't have it. There's a need for the market. Then you're working on this thing for a year and a half, two years. And maybe another technology just slipped in there. And you know what? You may have the better technology, but they've already established a presence in the market. They become the Kleenex in that tissue. People aren't referring to it as tissue paper, but they become the Kleenex brand. Now, all of a sudden, you come to market, ta-da, 
I'm out of here two, two and a half years later, and they've already got market acceptance. People are saying, I really, I, yeah, you probably do have a better mousetrap, but I already have one of these in my hospital. I, you know, I, it's going to be hard to displace this. Yeah. Uh, that would be the biggest one is be very cognizant of getting to market to your, your window of the time to get the market, because you may miss that window. It may close on you completely. Yeah, it's a great point. I think two, two, two comments to that. I think one is that window could be when you miss that window, it could be because you were too early or too late. Um, I've also yeah. seen products who were too early for their time. And then someone six years later says, Hey, you know what? This could be a good yeah. solution now. Sometimes people just aren't ready for it. But I think the other thing is, and this is sometimes hard, probably specifically for engineers to understand, um, is just because you make a better product, especially in the medical device industry, in, in the <laughs> real world setting, it's still hard, right? I mean, there's always that classic debate of the... Apple iPhone versus, you know, right. Samsung or something like this. And if you talk to some, well, before that, before that, your age, it was, it was the VCR versus Betamax. That was the, <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, yeah. it was, yeah. that's what it was. It was uh, right. VHS versus beta. Beta was a much better technology, much better platform. Mm -hmm. But it didn't make it to market. We all know VHS, which is gone. But right, yeah. My age, but you, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So with devices, though, it's even more. It's even harder because the market adoption for physicians, PAs, NPs, nurses, you know, whoever that that end user is, it takes longer. Um, you know, a lot of times I, I don't know the specific answer. I have a podcast that's going to be released on the 22nd with, with, uh, Dr. Amy Baxter, who, who kind of talks about this a little bit. And, and I, I don't know the answer. I have theories of, of what it could be, but, you know, education takes a while and they get through their educational program. And in that six year period or eight year period or 10 year period, there's been a lot of development, but they've been trained on the stuff eight years ago. So it, it, it does, you know, I've heard some numbers say it takes 10 years for, for physicians and, and, and end users to really adopt a new product. So it is really hard. You're, you're fighting an uphill battle just because you make a really cool product. If you don't have that marketing right. and sales piece, commercial piece, um, and, and hit your window right on the nose. Yeah. You could right. be in a world of hurt and, and, you know, whether it's fair or not, you made a really cool product, but it might never see the light of day is right. No, you're right. It's interesting. You said that about the uh, adoption. It's early in my career at J&J. So, so a couple of stories, you know, you know, going back, I, I would strongly urge that you find good KOL key opinion leaders and people that aren't the cowboys. You know, I, I know early on at J&J, some of the products we had cowboys and, and what you find out is and everybody looked you know everybody wanted to be around those you know the people on the bleeding cutting edge everybody wanted to be talking to those the people giving the innovative papers but at the end of the day they were so far ahead of their colleagues and risk they weren't the market you know the market and what everybody looked on their nose at the you know joe lunchbox surgeon which whole lunchbox surgeons, 80% of the market. So you can look down your nose and saying they're not the exciting ones, but they're the ones who are buying your product. So you could go market, develop something for the latest technology. But to your point, 
it's not ready yet. The market's not ready to adopt that technology. That's still six years away. So now you have to have enough money to last six years or whatever it is until that uptick occurs. But one of the interesting thing, you know, stories was you know, early on in my career, it was, uh, you know, talking about younger surgeons were the ones, the adopters. And I found that quite the, the total opposite. I found the older surgeons were the adopters. And I started, you know, testing my hypothesis. You know, they were observations. And my hypothesis was the younger ones, exactly what you said, come out of school residency. And, and so they're ingrained into these tools. You know, they're working, you know, uh, you know they have a mentor. They're working under, under them. They're working in these uh, institutions that are – are buying these technologies. So that's what they're used to. When they come out, what are they doing? They're going to use those. But it was the the physicians, the surgeons that have been doing it for 20 years who keep saying there's a better way of doing it. And they were the ones thinking. They were the ones thinking out of the box and saying, this this is crap. You know, I've done this. I was trained like this, but the outcomes aren't what I needed to be. My other buddies over here. And so it was interesting to see that. And again, I think it's a generalization you know, there's some incredibly bright young surgeons coming out off the yeah. charts, right? But, you know, it was always the old people who are, they're, they're, they're stodgy, they don't adopt technology. I found that completely untrue. Yeah, yeah, no, it, 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 it makes sense. And I think, um, you know, you could probably look at it just in, in, in general and in careers, you know, when you first start, you, you want to be as least, probably least risk adverse as possible. Right. Um, right. and, and doctors, uh, or clinicians in general are by nature, you know, they want to de-risk everything. Um, so sure. it's in their nature to do that, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's fascinating points and, and things people need to be aware of. Um, and, uh, you know, something that I just became aware of from talking to people like yourself and other people on the podcast that I figured, well, if, you know, if I wasn't thinking about this and this was something in my blind spot, it's got to be in other startups blind spots as well. So something to keep in mind as you go. Um, any other advice for startup companies? Uh, yeah, I feel like you've given a lot. Yeah, keep, patience. <laughs> yeah, patience, open mind. I mean, keep it, yeah. you know, be patient, open minded, listen, yep. listen, ask questions. And, you know, Tim and I kid each other, you know, uh, a healthy dose of humility is really important. The humility to say you don't know, I, I, you know, I can't tell you how much I've learned because I wasn't shaking my head think, saying I know something that I had no idea that was being said versus asking the uncomfortable question and opening Pandora's box and with knowledge and finding out more that when you do ask those questions and they may seem innocent, they can lead to a lot of knowledge and, and save a lot of time down the road and expense. So ask questions. Don't be afraid. Don't be yeah. afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to show some humility and say, you don't know, even though you think that you should know at that point, mm-hmm. if there's something that comes out, you know, come clean. Just, Okay. People are nice. Everybody's nice. People want to help. Yeah. You know, I think that in, in the long run, we, you know, the technologies, they enable, they, they help all these enabling technologies help all of us, you know, all of our, you know, parents, aunts, uncles, kids, they help, they help society. So we're in this together. So we need to help each other. Yep. Yeah. You touched on a good point. The industry's uh, amazing. Uh, and I think that, yeah, just don't be afraid to ask people for help because it's something that, uh, when I was starting this podcast and asking for guests to say, 
listen, I, I need to steal an hour of your day to interview on this podcast that has zero listeners right now because I'm just starting it. You know, <laughs> would you do it? And and I didn't have a single person say no. I mean, all the my first yeah. 10 guests that I asked were people who were like, yeah, let's do it. Sounds great. I'm willing to help, yeah. you know, share some information. So, um, yeah, I, I, I echo your, your uh, comments. All right, last question. Um, and it's something that I, I mean to ask everybody, but I, I, I sometimes I forget. Um, Post COVID, we're getting through it. We're going to have in-person conferences, I hope, uh, this year, but if not next year. Um, so if I'm at a conference, I see Craig Berkey, uh, what are some things I can talk to you about outside of the medical device industry? What do you enjoy to do in your, in your, in your free time? <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. Uh, I don't know anything. I mean, I just like uh, just open-mindedness. No, tell me about you. I, you know, I, I don't want to hear about me. I know about me. I want to hear, I want to hear, I want somebody to tell me about them, their hobbies. I, I know what mine are. So I yeah. love to listen. I love to learn. I, I, I miss that Dwayne. I can't tell you what you said, how much I miss the conferences. I miss colleagues. I miss seeing people. I miss the silly hallway conversations at a show, having a beer. I, 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 I can't tell you, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, with COVID, we, we've coined this term of, of social distancing. I hate the term, you know, it should be physical distancing. We I should agree. not be social distancing. We should be socially being closer and physically staying apart. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Let's talk about the last <laughs> book you read that, that, yeah. that, that always is interesting because yep. it shows yep. the genre of what you're interested in. And, uh, right. Yeah, you know, I like to get the more you can, you know, know about people and what makes them happy, and and uh, the more you just grow yourself. You know, it, yeah. you know, I'll leave you with this. My my father was a salesman, and uh, and I used to love. You know, my father was by no means, uh, you know, a successful financially. He was kind of the milk run kind of sales guy sold textiles for a small local company and mm -hmm. uh happy man wonderful man but not, not the the ceo or in any type of uh industry leader or executive but he was a happy man and he would he loved loved his customers and he would do his milk runs he would do his mm -hmm. you know every month he would do his milk runs and come home and tell stories and tell stories of what he learned and how much how much he learned from them, just how much it benefited our lives, you know, and how much respect that he had for, for them. Never a, 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 a negative word about any of them. And I think if we start embracing people and listening versus talking over people, uh, we're going to do better as a society to, to listen. Yeah. No, I love it, Craig. That's great advice to end on. Um, Hang on for uh, one minute here. We'll stop the recording and have a quick discussion offline. But uh, Craig, I, I really appreciate your time today. You gave a lot of good advice. This is this is the first podcast that I, I've had someone on to cover, you know, design, contract manufacturing. So it's a new area. But I think outside of that, you gave a lot of good advice just through your history in the medical device field, but also, you know, still working with these companies. So I really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks. And, and, and you did a wonderful job. I mean, it. it just a very comfortable you just a, a really really nice job of of walking through and, and just making it a conversation so hopefully next time it's with a beer yeah i, I hope so <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe 
and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.